Hello there, and thanks so much for supporting the Music Career Show. My aim with this podcast is to help as many people as I can turn their passion for music into a career that can support them and their family by speaking to people who have actually done it and finding out how they've done it. With this in mind, I have developed my music career roadmap. This is a fully comprehensive and detailed step-by-step guide of how you can go from dreaming about your ideal career to actually implementing and living that dream. It is yours to download for free and can be found in the description of this episode. If you would like any support at any stage of your music career, you can reach out to me via email at barry at oneladmusic.com. I wish you all the best of luck and I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Music Career Show. Welcome to the Music Career Show, telling you the stories of the world's best professional musicians. Hello there and welcome to the Music Career Show. My name is Barry and every week I'll be speaking with incredible musicians from all over the world about how they've honed their craft and made a career out of doing what they love the most. If you're a new listener, then while you still have your device in your hand, please take a second to subscribe and tell your friends all about the Music Career Show. All right, hello there, everybody. Welcome back to the Music Career Show. Today's guest is known throughout the world as the King of Times Square. He performs over 250 times a year and knows the business better than anyone. He's a fantabulous, a fantabulous. He is a fabulous singer-songwriter and as well as an amazing performer and showman, he's also an all-around sound lad. And he used to drive a pink Cadillac. His name is Derek Dempsey. Derek, how are you doing? It's good to finally get you on. Barry, I love that introduction. Fantabulous. Fantabulous. I might, I, I, I'll be as well keeping that in because fantabulous sounds way better than fabulous anyway. Right. I thought that was intentional, fantabulous. So I'd say go with it. It's great. Fantabulous. Yeah. yeah. Fanta- well, that's going to be the name of the, that's gonna be the name of, of the episode, the fantabulous Mr. Dempsey. There you go. Well, James Joyce made up words. Yeah, exactly. You should make them up. Exactly. You might as well. And we're looking at, at the end of the day, it's not as if the universe came you know, Planet Earth came with, you know, a, a book saying, here's all the words you're going to use. What we All words are made up, so you just made up another word. Exactly, exactly. I'm delighted. I'm going to get on to the, them boys in Oxford and tell them to stick it into the dictionary with a photo of me beside it and a photo of you on the other side as well. So, Derek, great. Before we get into all the, the, the madness of the King of Times Square and the Pink Cadillac and all that jazz, where did music start for you? Jesus Christ, that's a great question. Um, you know, not to get pedantic about it, but to, to actually locate exactly when it started, I'm sure it was probably in the womb. My dad was a huge music lover, Sinatra, Elvis, uh, Nat uh, King Cole, Satchmo. My, my dad went to see um, Louis Armstrong in Dublin in 1956. I actually wow. have the playbill upstairs that when, wow. when he died, my ma gave me some of his stuff. I have his Sinatra box sets over there. So I basically... Got into Elvis at an early age, as I think almost every kid did at, at certain, you know, through certain decades. But then when I was 12, I started, my, you, my ear just started telling me, I have to listen to this guy, Sinatra. So I, we would buy my dad, you know, greatest hits of Sinatra at Christmas or his birthday. You know, he, it was either that or socks or a pipe. He never smoked a pipe. You know, kids are like. <laughs> yeah. So then I'd be like, oh, I heard that song, New York, New York, or I heard My Way or the summer wind and that voice, the orchestra. So by 12, I was sticking my dad's records on the turntable, putting the headphones on, and then I put Bowie on. Then I put the Human League on. And there was a Limbo album that me and my sister used to 
dance to. Believe me, you don't want to see me dancing. But it was just always there. Music was always there. I think it was just, my mom says it was just always, music was always the most important thing to me. So yeah. I guess it started, you know, it, it started early, or I remember just being, just like around the, in the same way as when did, when did you start being interested in girls? Well, it's kind of always that thing. But then there was a time where you're like, I need to get myself a bar of soap. Now I start chasing. Yeah, you know? yeah. But yet, so it, it was there. And then there was a time where it was like, I'm conscious of it. And I need to follow it. And, uh, you know, ever, ever since to this, to, to this morning, first thing I think of when I wake up, music. Let me play music. Let me write music. Let me listen to it. Brilliant. And then when did the likes of, so you're, I, I'm, as far as I know, guitar is your first instrument. Is that right? No, it's actually, well, again, that's kind of complicated. I, at 14, they threw me out of school. Oh. After being on the hop for two years solid. And the reason I went on the hop is very simple. They introduced algebra. I have a condition that's only really recently known. It's the numerical version of the dyslexia. It's called oh, dyscalculia. 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 So I have major problems with numbers. You throw in the phone number at me and I'll call it back to your backwards upside down and just go, ah, here, forget it. So I basically said, I can't handle this. I was, I was an okay student. I was good at English, great at art. And uh, I'm a hyperactive person. That didn't help in school. So I was just, I'm done with this. Going back to school with, as well. Look, you go back to school when you're 12, 13, you're starting to grow up. And you start seeing the difference in your own way of thinking to other kids. Mm. I always kind of felt a little bit like, okay, I can't handle some of the childish that went on. So I went in the hop. They caught me, went in the hop again. They caught me. They eventually got me back to school, told me parents, look, he never stops moving. All he's doing is singing in the class, get him a guitar. So I got a guitar. Funny enough, I know you're a big Eddie Van Halen fan. Mm. So I had a guitar. I knew a couple of chords from me, mate. You know, Summertime Blues, a little couple of licks, but I was yes. no idea how to play. And I'm listening to uh, Beat It by Michael Jackson. Very good, yeah. And I'm, and I'm wondering to myself, why can I get, why can I not go doodle do 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 And I'm, and that's made my mind was thinking, I can do that. Now I still can't play that, but I understand it now. So that was it. I started playing, started writing songs at fourteen. Uh, my fourth song was basically a, a song against against establishment, the church, the school, the um, the cops, the 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 the, the, uh, the man, the man. And to this day. My new my album I'm working on now is basically, but it's not that it's just against the man; it's for the people. And I don't mind the man when the man is not harming the people. But let's put it this way: since I was fourteen, I knew the man was harming the people. Yeah, and I think people are seeing that more and more and more now. I don't know how political you can get in this show, but anyway. So then I started writing songs, and by by fifteen, I'd written about five or six songs. Met a guy called Damien Finnegan. He said he was playing drums. One thing that's another. We're up in the school hall in Armagh which is where Phil Innes' first band, the Black Eagles, practiced with Brian Downey. Actually, we was just sitting with Brian Downey the other night there, talking about yeah. the old days for him. Yeah. And then we had a band, and uh, I was playing the guitar on stage, and then everybody kept saying, oh, you, I do two songs of guitar, and then three songs without it. And people would say, oh, I love your voice without the guitar. And they were right, because yeah. even though I play guitar, I prefer to sing without the guitar, because I can phrase the way I want to and sing easier. So... In one way, you're right, guitar is my first instrument, but singing is my primary instrument. I, I play drums on my latest single. Oh, brilliant. So did you ever go for any sort of like formal training or it was literally like, I can do that. I'm going to keep going till I can make the sound that I'm hearing. 
That's a that's a brilliant question. I'll tell you why. I think whatever you have in you, what when you think to yourself as a kid, I want to go to the moon. I want to be the president. I want to be a, a surgeon. I want to be a doctor. I want to be a, a woodworker. There's mm. a reason why. I, I never wanted to be a dancer. And I love dance, but I can't dance. Yeah. I never wanted to be a chef. Uh, to talk, didn't, nothing. I wasn't drawn to those things. There was a reason. It wasn't that I decided one day, what do I want to be? I want to be. Music was just in me. It was in my DNA, like it's in your DNA, like it's in Eddie Van Halen's, like it was in Mozart's. Not to be put in you knew with those incredible greats. Yeah, but on, on, on a fundamental level, it's 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 the same as as everyone needs to to breathe and to walk and to talk exactly. and all it, musicians just need to it, it's just what we need to do. That, that's that's it. So I it was a case of I knew I, I understood music uh, innately. And I knew I could, when I was listening to Sinatra as a 12 and 14 year old, and I heard, let's say I've got you under my skin. And I didn't know it was Cole Porter that wrote it. And I didn't know that the arrangement was by Nelson Riddle. And I didn't know that the drummer was Irv Kotler, who most people don't even know who he is. But I knew this drummer was hitting the stair drum exactly where it should be. And I understood without putting it in words that the reason why Sinatra had this great band was because of his phrasing. I could understand his phrasing, where he was coming in. It wasn't a mistake. You know, you listen to I've Got You All On My Skin, 1956. One of the greatest recordings ever, hands down. Listen to it on headphones, listen to it on a stereo system, and listen to it intently. Listen to mm. each instrument. It's perfection. The band is absolute perfection. So I just knew that I needed to get there. What, what do they call that when they, muscle memory? And to get memory. the physical of it, just like the woodworker or the guy chopping a tree down, you have to find the physical. It's in, it's in not to get heavy. It's in the spiritual, it's in the brain, it's in the DNA. You know, there's a lot more in life that we don't know than we do know. And that's some type of half our Shakespeare quote. Horatio, there's more in the heavens and the earths and the stars. Blah, yeah. blah, blah. Go back to school. Very good. Well, look, yeah, as you're saying, it's just sort of in you. But there must have been something in the water in Crumlin because there's that many of you that have come out of it in the past 50, 60 years of just immense importance and talent and, 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 and standing. Yourself, Phil. Christy Brown, McGregor, the whole lot of them. What's 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 going on in Crumlin? I love I love that there, that you immense importance, and and then you mentioned me in the same breath as Lynn and and Christy Brown. I don't know if you said Brendan Bean or not, but then Brendan. you mentioned McGregor. Now I look, it, you know what I mean. Like him or lump him, you cannot deny. You cannot deny his talent. Like we were talking about before, before we started recording. You, 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 like, like, like him or otherwise, you cannot deny the 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 talent that that fella has. Singing, well, one hundred percent. You know what it is. I don't know him, and if I met him, I would say that to him. I, I mean, I've met people who I, I remember meeting Glenn Hansard in in Las Vegas, and he played my guitar and sang a few songs, and I said to Glenn, ah. listen. I love your success. I, I'm so happy for it. And a lot of people wouldn't be, especially the fact that we were peers. I interviewed Jerry Leonard and I met Jerry Leonard and he's been at my gig. And I said to Jerry, I love your success. You got to play guitar with Bowie. We all wanted to do that. So at least one of us did. And they seem surprised that, that I'm not trying to drag him down. I don't understand that. I'm, you know, Irish people are brilliant. But one of our biggest faults is dragging each other down. I don't understand why we do that. I love success. Um, so the whole point come back around to McGregor. I would, if I was having a candid chat with him, I'd keep my hands up just in case you wanted to punch me. <laughs> yeah, okay. sure. Listen, listen. Pull back a little bit on the toggery thing. I know it's great, and it's a, 
but just have more class. You know, you're, yeah. you're an excellent athlete, and that alone is class. Yeah, you don't need to be this person, and it's go, it's going to it's going to drag them down. I'd hate to see that because look at the class of even even don't get me started on on, on Lina, Philip Lina, Philip Lina, whichever way it's supposed to be pronounced. Although he said Lina. And his mother he told said, me he, he said he said Linus because that's that's like it's it's like that whole thing Billy Joel or Joel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I'm it's potato, potato, tomato, tomato, George Gershwin, Eric Gershwin. It's let's call it up, whatever you know. Yeah. Um, if somebody says to me, Lennon, I know who I'm talking about. If somebody says to me, Billy Joel, I know what they're talking about. Yeah. If anybody that interrupts the conversation, I, I've learned this in my life. Anybody interrupts the conversation to correct you, I just change the subject and go, gotta go, see ya. No interest. Yeah, you know, time is, time is of the essence. I could go on about Philip Liner for many reasons. In my new song, I, I reference him as the king of Ireland, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Um, and I think that's what he is. And I was reading the other day that because it was over for the Viet. And I've had this conversation over the years. He was born in Ireland in a time where the church had complete control. He was born what they called a bastard, something that if anybody calls a person born out of wedlock, a bastard should be knocked out, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No such thing. Knocked him out again. Um, he was he was he was black. Um, even though he was white and he was a mix, ultimately he was black and he was called the worst names. He was also an orphan in a way because his mother wasn't there, he was raised by a grandmother. And when he died, RTE kept his music out. It's, the establishment didn't want his music in. They 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 pushed it down because of the lifestyle he lived. But you go like this and flip right back around. If the church in Ireland had been, well, we understand it happens. A woman will get pregnant out of wedlock, which happens throughout history. It's normal. It is. Pregnancy came first. Marriage. A separate issue. I never understand the way of thinking. So what they did to him by by having that stigma attached to all of the issues would have been black, being being, um, born out of wedlock, um, and being an orphan, did such damage to him. That is probably directly connect, absolutely connected to the fact that he was so insecure and probably went to the drugs that killed him in the end. The irony of it just killed him. Yeah, go on forever about it. Guy was a genius. He was a genius. Was a genius. And I, 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 for for any of the the instrument nerds out there, um, I uh, one of my favorite things about Phil Linnet, uh, was or Linus, Phil Linnet, Phil Linus, Phil. Was the uh, was the bass that he played? He played an Ibanez Road Star, which is I've got a Road Star, and I'm an absolute Ibanez fanatic. So uh, and I, I love the, the like the mirrored um, scratch plates and all the stuff. One of my earliest memories of Phil Linnet, and I didn't even realize it was Phil Linnet until I was oh, I'd say coming up close to twenty was one of his songs, and I don't think it was Tin Lizzy. I think it might have been. I think it might have been Phil solo was on the old. Was it Brennan's or Pat the Baker ad on the telly? Was it Old Town? Do 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 do. The mother fool, she broke the rules. She hurt him hard. That one. How yeah. long ago was that now? Oh, Jesus! Now, so I'm thirty, and I knew that from. You're talking at least, at least, at least twenty, twenty-five years ago. At well, least. Boys cracking up. This boy yes, looking down. That's the one. That's Master exactly the one. Yeah. Quick thing that that base with the mirror, he got that mirror idea from supporting uh Nutty Holder. What was the name of Nutty Holder's band? Slade. Um, Slade. Slade. had the mirrors on in his hat, and he, he Philip saw how he was using the hat to shine light, so he's got the base 
um, perspective mirror. Genius idea, man. Do you, want, do, you want to, do you want to know another really weird and coincidental thing about Slade is that yes. in the video, in the mid-80s video for um, the, the Christmas song, they're both, both of the guitar players, Noddy Holder and the other fella, player, fella, they're both playing Ibanez Road Stars, which was the, is the exact one that I just got not long ago, which is like it all weird, that, isn't it? It, it is. It's fascinating to me, actually. It's it fascinating. Really just, you know, the thing about music, I always say to people two things. One, when people say, oh, geez, the Sex Pixels and, and Puccini, uh, you know, like, what, what? And they'll be like, that's, that's miles apart, opera and, and the Sex Pixels. No, it's really not. Because you get, I don't know if you know much about opera. I'm a huge opera fan. I have been since I was 18. I've been to, to many operas. I was going to the Met twice, three times a month before the lockdowns. Kids were grown, so it was more free time. But anyway, you get Man and Butterfly by Puccini, and there's a piece in it called The Humming Chorus, and there's a riff that goes, dum, dum, dum. Dum, dum, dum. There you go. Dum, 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 dum. Stand by dum, me. Dum, That's exactly what I heard. Yeah. So that, there you go. And it's dum, dum, dum. Da, da. Dum, yeah. dum, dum. Have a listen to it, Barry. It will kill you. It's one of the most amazing. And I can guarantee you that half of the players that you're into, because you like the heavy metal stuff, yeah. were influenced by J.S. Bach, by Wagner, oh, by Mozart. You listen to the overture from... The Marriage of Figaro by Mozart. You play that on guitar, man, with a band. You blow people away and they'll be off. Nuno Betancourt done it about 40 years ago in Extreme. What did he do? He, that exact, the Marriage of Figaro, is it? Played it in Do You Want to Play by Extreme. There you go. It was in Bill and I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Nuno Betancourt, huge, uh, well, I don't know if he was hugely influenced by the, like, the likes of what you're talking about, but Ingvin Malmsteen, if you've ever heard of him, Randy Rhodes, you'll surely have heard of Randy Rhodes. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, all, all, all of them boys. Ingve actually would always say that he was more influenced by classical violin players than by any um, guitarists. So you're right, it's, it's, it's all, music is all, I suppose it's, it's, it's one of these things, it's a cliche thing to say that musical, music is the, the universal language because no matter, I could be sitting, well, well, I'm sitting here in Aberdeen, Scotland, you're sitting there in New York in, in the States. We could be talking to God knows who in the middle of China somewhere that doesn't speak a lick of English. But I guarantee you, if you was a musician and I started playing a G chord on the guitar, you picked up a bass or a piano and started playing a G chord, he would, and he knew anything about music, he'd know where to go with it. Do you know what I mean? He'd know where to go. And with, without a lick of English, without a lick of communication between the three of us properly, um, it's, it's, it is, it's the music or it's the, the universal language. One bit of music is just the same as any other bit of music. You can relate it all back. It's all intertwined. It's lovely. It's a lovely do thing. Know, do, you know, do you know what I think of what you just said there? Yeah. 100% agree with you. I couldn't have said it better. It is. It's just, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful, lovely, lovely thing. Music is always, I always say that music is the, well, no, I don't always say, my, my, my wife's grandfather always said that the best thing that anyone could ever do with their life is music. And I couldn't agree with it more. Yeah. I, I, and I, I wouldn't disparage anybody who doesn't play music. No. But a lot of people I know who love me, I have a friend in Ireland, uh, Ricky McCabe, and he plays guitar and he sings and plays bass. And he's not a professional. He's listening now. He's probably ready to punch the head off me. But I don't know anybody who loves music as much as him. I, I would even wonder if he loves it more than I do. And as yeah. my ma, as, as my ma used to say about me, there's no one I know 
who loves music. She, she used to liken, well, she still probably would, but that Michael Jackson song, Music and Me, there, there have been others, but never two lovers. Now, I love my wife and kids, and I love humanity, you know, but putting all those things aside, I love film, I love clothes, uh, I, I love many, many things, but there's something about music yeah. that goes beyond art. I mean, I, I'm talking about it here and I'm, and I'm feeling overwhelmed. Fantastic. So, well, that was that was a lovely, refreshing little, uh, just just kind of segue into just why music is class and why everyone should always have music and forever. Yeah, I love it. 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 So you were you were eighteen. You were playing in the, in the same kind of uh, venues and stuff as as all the great boys before you, and I know that there would have been a, a little bit of a gap between then. And when you went to America, because you went to America maybe about five, six, ten years there, was it? I went, I went to America in 99 to live, but I went on tour for the first time in 95. and went on and off on tour from 95 to 99. Grand. So how did how did all of that sort of stuff come about? Was it all just right, a so, progression that we you, you got better and people in America wanted to hear you? Or what was the story? Was it more manufactured than that? Oh, no, it definitely was manufactured. You know, we weren't that lucky. Um... I, as a kid, just to go back, as a kid, I loved America. I was, I don't know if this was a thing, but my ma or in Dublin or all over, but when pillowcases, right, pillowcases, mm-hmm. would get a little off color, they were thrown out. I remember a lot of pillowcases being thrown out for some reason. So I would take the pillowcase and I would get a red and a blue Sharpie, what would he call it, Ireland marker, a Sharpie over here. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see and where you're going. What's the American flag? On, on the pillowcase, I love the American flag. I love America. I love Cadillacs. That was so. My idea was, I wanted to go to America, live in a big house, drive a Cadillac, and marry Lisa Marie Presley because I loved Elvis and I loved his daughter. I thought she was gorgeous. So yeah. I did come to America. I did drive many Cadillacs. I did live. I do live in a big house, and I married a Lisa, but it wasn't Lisa Marie Presley. It was Lisa Canoe. So I married a Lisa. I got it almost right. Yeah. Well, look, as Meatloaf would have said, two out of three. You know yourself. That's a fact, Meatloaf indeed. What a song. Don't get me started on that song. Love Meatloaf. What an album. What an album. Even is not so great. No, let's not call it. I'll be there all day. Jim Steinman there, right? (laughs) I'm actually actually hugely influenced by Jim Steinman's style of of chord writing. Oh, nice. Very good. That new new song. When I'm I'm writing, I'm thinking, the certain writers, what would Bowie do? What What would the great American songwriters do? What would I do? Yeah. What would Steinman do here? Would Steinman, you know, Jim Steinman would go to an unusual change? Guys yeah. Incredible, right? Anyway. Um, so America was always in my brain, wanted to go there. Um, then the band were playing around. We were, you know, I remember Brian Downey getting on stage to introduce us one night. Slackley's, I was 16. And I thought I was hearing things. He introduced me. Great band, the elite lead singer, Derek Dempsey, one of our best R&B singers in the country, and I'm going, all right, I'm only 10, Lizzie. He can't be, that that insecurity of an Irish guy, working class Irish guy with holes in his shoes, can't be talking about me. There must be another Derek Dempsey here. Yeah. I didn't really know what an R&B singer was at that stage. I yeah, fair enough. knew what R&B was. Yeah. But I didn't really, and then I was like, oh, because I never, I don't I don't believe in that style. What what type of singer are you? I'm a singer. End of story. It's like, it's, ask, it's, like, it's almost asking like, what type of, you know, walk are you? I walk. I use my feet and I walk and I propel yeah, forward. I don't know. Yeah. So, um, so we, we're playing the scene. We, we have a pretty good reputation. 
And a big thing that was always coming back was the energy. People love the energy, the energy, the energy. We were young, and I've always had that crazy hyperactivity. Um, so that helped on stage, and it still goes to this day. Mm. So we're getting a name, and we got on radio, we got on television. There was a show called Joe Maxi we got on. But because we were working class, we were never really – the doors were always closed on the face. Mm. And we, once, the, once the doors are closed in your face and you're an angry young working class man, you get angry at it. And then the people can say, well, this is why we close the door in the face. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like with, with the situation with, with the, the civil rights in America, with the, uh, the, the civil rights, which it was a civil rights fight up in, in our six counties. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, you, you stamp somebody down and when they get angry, you go, well, this is why we stamped them down because look what they do. You know, it's one of the dirtiest tricks in the book. And that uh, was used on us. But we were still blowing people away. You, can, you cannot stamp down what a band are doing. And we had a lot of working class, middle class bands. Um, so here's where it came in. It all connected. One night we were playing in Slattery's. We had been toured. We had toured around a little bit around England. We had went over to the Canaries and spent two months, seven nights a week, four hours a night on stage, getting that chop together. We came back a different band. Yeah, we had with Joe Elliott. We had played with Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. I became really? friends. Him. I met. We'd go shopping in town. Big difference in what we were buying. Yeah, and he was going to produce us, and then him and his wife broke up, and that was the end of that. So we're in. We're in them. Um, Slackery's playing. Always packing the place out, doing the whole live and dangerous album, which I didn't really want to do because I was writing originals. But you know, diplomacy. Not diplomacy, but the, the, the what do they call it when you have a, a democratic vote? Yeah, yeah. But I still enjoyed it, don't get me wrong. Mm. With Derek Warfield from the Wolf Tones. You know Derek Warfield from the Wolf Tones? I know him, I know him well. He walks in one night, sees the band, comes up to the dressing room, and he actually turned around and said to me, ah, Derek, uh, I heard your demo tape, uh, Berlin singer. Did you have any lessons? And being Irish, being about 21 at the time, maybe 22, I looked up at him going, who the fuck's this? Expecting, <laughs> expecting the usual. Are you not that great? Because I don't yeah. know whether you know where, where you're from in Ireland, but as quick as they build you up, they drag you back down again. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. So I became brilliant. I became almost McGregor-like. Not literally, but metaphorically. Defending myself. I spent more energy, Barry, defending myself by as the days went on for how I looked. How, see, people perceive who you think you are by who they think you are. So if people think that you're really, really confident, they go, he's really, really confident. He's, he's a confident prick. Rather yeah. than realize that that's how they see you. I, I've yet to get somebody who actually figures me and, go, and figures out who I actually am. Nobody. No, I don't think any of us can figure out who the other person is. But anyway, Derek, cut long story short, because this is a long story. Sorry. He said to uh, me, um, this goes back to your first question. I did take six singing lessons when I was 19 from a woman called Trisha Ryan. The best six lessons and best hundred pound I ever spent. She taught me what the opera singers do, which is when you go for a high note, you don't go like this. You go like this. So you see Pavarotti singing Ness and Dorma, and you're getting those high notes. He goes yeah. like this. And when he's finished, then he, he throws his head up. Think low for a high note and yeah. high for a low note. But there was a lot of other things she taught me. So Derek said, your voice is brilliant. They love that type of voice in America, but we need to change the frame. So we need to get to get over there and get it easy. You need to be doing something that everybody's not doing. So you need to do the Irish thing. And 
without getting into the minutia of that and where we went wrong, that's how we got there. Within a year or two, we were over in America doing the Irish ballads in a rock way, influenced by our maiden, no doubt. Yeah. And like I was like Sinatra. Uh, imagine Sinatra singing the Black and Tans and Sam Cooke. And the band were like Iron Maiden and Eddie Van Halen. One of our guitar players, Sean Sweeney. And John Sweeney, yeah. guitar player, works for Walters. He's one of Ireland's greatest guitar players. Yeah. See him every time we're home, and he's a gentleman. Guy's unreal. He always lends me a guitar as well when I'm, when I'm home to, you know, to, to work. I but remember, something yeah. we were doing that because it was Iron Maiden, there was soul, there was a bit of jazz, there was Sinatra, and it was all over the joint. But it went down well. And that's how we ended up with the band Hedge School, signed to KTEL. Had an album released and we toured for four years, and that's how we got to America. Sorry about that fifty-five minute long rant. That, that that that's all unreal. That that sounds that's the most eclectic mix of anthem I've ever heard in my life. Black and tans in the style of Iron Maiden with Sinatra singing. Jesus, I tell you, I'd pay any amount of money to see that. I'll I'll send you the album. Send me the album, yeah, because that sounds that sounds absolutely class. Like that's the type of thing that you kind of. You'd be like, right, what kind of band are we going to do? Everybody write down 10 ideas. I'm going to throw these into a hat. And then that that's what we're going to do. And no matter how fucking loopy it sounds, that's what we're going to do come hell or high water. But I love it. I love it. So you went down well in America then anyway. Yeah, we did. We, were, I mean, I always say when, when you're on stage in front of 14,000 people and a, and a woman gives you her child, which happened on many occasions, yeah. you know something's gone right. They wanted yeah. to hold that on stage. Yeah. Strange. You were, you were playing big enough venues then, were you? And we were playing out festivals. Festivals. Huh? We also did a gig, and I, I was with one of the, the drummer from the band at the Vibe, Eddie Gaynor. Right. He was, in, he was, he was at Hedge School too, and he reminded me of more details than I could remember myself of a gig we did in Quincy Shore in Boston. In a snowstorm, we played to two people. We a rig that, you know, our amazing yeah. would have been. Oh. But then we played 14,000 people at festivals the next day. It's just the way it goes. Yeah, it's 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 funny because I, I I played in America as well, and I played in I, there was one night I played in Washington D.C. and there was nobody, there was not a single customer there, and we were just we just kept on playing, just kept like we says, listen, are we is there any point in this playing? And they were like, yeah, you'd be as well, you might as well, and we had like two hours to go, and there was not a single person. I think it was like a a Monday or a Tuesday night in D.C. Uh, but uh, yeah, absolutely nobody there. And in the same token, the next day, you probably know the venue actually. It was, it's not there anymore. It was um, Reraw in um, uh, in DC. And we were playing in, in, in the bar in the snug up against the window, the front window on that night. And then the like the the following Saturday or the previous Saturday we played and I don't know, the place was absolutely packed out of it. However many people were in there. So the types of festivals that we were playing then, or did, were they like the, the Irish festivals? Were they rock festivals? What were they? They, they were Irish. They were definitely Irish festivals. Some would have more of an Irish flavor than others. But, you know, that might be more rock-oriented. It depends on what part of the country you're in. Yeah. Because we were doing, like, we, we were doing, let, let's think of one of the songs that we, we had on the album. I, I had an original song called Listen to Your Ma Boys, which was in, I think it was in 12A, like, twin guitars, so. Yeah. And yeah. So we were drawing the, the we were drawing the long haired uh, denim jacket guys that would have ACDs here. I made in a Lizzie because they were hearing yeah. that we were doing that. But there were other there were also people who had an ear that were saying things to me like, 
you're not you're not a metal singer. And they're like, no, I'm not a metal singer. I'm a singer. Aye. And we would do My Way by Sinatra on stage. Although that took a lot of convincing of the band, but with twin yeah. guitars. However, the last song Philip Lyon had ever sang on the first, on, on New Year's Eve, going into the first of January, four days before he died, was My yeah. Way. And Norse, Norse asked him, you're a singer, sing a song. What's one of your hits? And oh, I don't know, I don't want to sing one of my songs. And the Norse said, well, what's your favorite song? He said, My Way by Sinatra. So he sang it in his bed. And his mother told me this at his house in Glencore and in, in, um, in, in Hope, uh, Sutton, whatever, Deborah is there, that that was the last song he sang. And she showed me his albums in his house, Nat King Cole, Sinatra, jazz albums, singers. You cannot be a singer like Philip Lina and not listen to the great singers. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. It happen. So the point I'm making was, but mostly, they were mostly Irish based, but the people were hearing us that we weren't just doing the standard, what would be called Paddy Rock. Like we weren't doing, we, we weren't playing, um, what the hell is it called? As I was going over, we weren't playing, going over, Cork and Carmine. We weren't giving it that. We weren't yeah. doing the car, we were doing our own thing. Good stuff. That, that, that sounds all amazing. So were you guys um, were you guys booking that yourselves or did you have representation? Did you have an agent? How, how did that work? Or was it through Derek Warfield? It was through Derek. And I always say that. I saw, I saw Derek a little while ago at a festival just the, the weekend of Thanksgiving up here where I live in Dutchess County. And yeah. I always say the same thing to him. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be in America if it wasn't for him. He, got, he was the only person in Ireland that, was, that stood up. There were some people that helped us. But Derek, yeah. people who had power and influence, he stood up and he put his money where his mouth was and his time, and he got us to America. And I'd forever be grateful to him for that. He put us on tour. He pulled out a lot of influences and got us traveling up now the East Coast. He got right. us amazing. Yeah, got very good. See, guy's incredible, you know. So when then did America become your home, essentially? Because I know that you've, you've been there for years now at this stage. You're well and truly established. You're kind of, uh, yeah, when, when, when did, when did that, that happen? Or how did that happen, I suppose? Um, well, one of the members of the band, Lee Hedgeville, moved over here, had met his wife-to-be uh, at one of the gigs uh, back in, the, in like 97 or something up in, up in the Catskills. So we, I got out of the Hedgeville band. I just couldn't hack it anymore because we weren't doing anything original. Uh, we, we were going in the wrong direction for me musically at the end of the day. Just forget yeah. it. We were doing the same thing as we were doing with Lizzie. We were getting caught in the rut. And I released an album under the most ridiculous name, Jesus Fever. <laughs> Love it. Everybody thought that it was a Jesus, like religious thing, where I'm a non-believer in any religion, uh, commonly known as an atheist, but that's too small of a word to explain. Not a story. Yeah. So it was absolutely the wrong thing, but it was a character from a Truman Capote book. Anyway, we right. live and learn. Yeah. So I released the original, and that was what drove me out of the country. The guy in the band said, look, come over, live with me and the wife, and we'll get a band going. I worked at, at, for about nine months making swimming pools till I got used to the way I got a guitar. I went out gigging. And on August 4th, September 4th, 2000, in the year 2000, I started gigging, and I haven't stopped since, except for the, the, the lockdown nonsense. So I say nonsense. Yeah. I get the trouble for saying that. Nah, not not at all. How did you, like, we went online for everything, obviously enough, but how did you manage over, over lockdown? Not, not really well. The first four months was me and, and uh, Lisa and two of the kids. So we watched, we, we'd pick a movie each and we'd watch four movies a day. And that went on through 
late late March, it was half of March, April, May, June. And we were eating pizza almost every day. And I was I was a guy that was walking always, making sure I was taking care of myself. And yeah. uh, I looked in the mirror one day and I went, I was doing I was doing um, a show from this corner of the room uh, on a I guess it would have been a Friday night playing my you know songs. Yeah, yeah. For Fourteen weeks in lockdown, and then I'd go over to the other side of the room and I'd play two hours of, of songs called I'd call the hit hit and misses, and I'd play yeah, pool yeah. as a pool table right ahead of me here, and I play pool. But I, every week I I dress you know like I would on stage. Each week yeah. I'd find that one set of clothes wouldn't fit me. And I got to the stage, uh, but it was no clothes fit me. I was eating pizza. Yeah. So I, uh, I took a run, and I, I've been running now for two and a half years. But anyway, then, then I got involved with a, a guitar player who, like yourself, loves that type of guitar playing. And we did a show called What Is America To You, which is, you can get the podcast and the videos online. So we got through with that, and then we started gigging a bit. And all, but I wasn't very happy about it. But originally, you asked me a question, and I brought up the lockdowns, which could be a separate show in itself. I gigged and gigged for years, and then... I, I ended up, after the, about a year and a half I've been here, I met a woman and she just, you know, the way that happens. I mean, you're married, right? I am married. I met, I met your, your what's your girlfriend's name? You your did, actually. It, it, Lauren, you you did in, in, in New York that time. She was only my girlfriend at that stage. We'd only gone out about two years at that stage. I, and I remember she was the sweet, the sweetest girl. Yeah, lovely. She was so sweet, so yeah. friendly, so smiley. Am I am I thinking of the right person here? Well, that's her. Yeah, that's that's absolutely her. Yeah. And I remember th- I probably said to you, and hang on there, you know, I'm a stupid thing that men say to each other. Jesus, how the hell did you get or? Aye, sure enough. That same thing. Um, and myself and Lisa have been together now for twenty two years. I'm living here twenty four, nearly twenty five years, and uh, she had been. She was just going through a divorce. She had three kids, and uh, I met the youngest, who's now twenty-five. Actually, she's twenty-six in two days. I oh, met her three, and look, I can't explain these things. But I walked around the corner, met Lisa, met the kid, and uh, she's like, "I, I know, you know, this. I, I'm in there like forever." So then, that's it. That's how I kind of ended up living here, and then I got my green card, and citizenship, and you know, you're 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 in for a penny, in for a pound. Wife, kids, mortgage. Yeah. So if anyone is over this end of the world in their maybe they're in Scotland, maybe they're in Ireland, maybe they're somewhere else and they want to break into America, like in the way that you did, how would does someone go about doing that? Do they just ring up Joe's Irish pub in New York and be like, Here hey, I'll sing you a load of songs on Saturday night if you pay for me flights over or something or how 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 do you go about doing that? Well, it's like anything, and if somebody had said this to me 30 years ago, I would have went, what? Mm. You, you, you have to want to do it, and you almost have to be left on your own to do it. You have to make the decisions yourself. And yeah. a, a friend of mine years ago said to me, I have a great saying that a guy like you could use. He said to me, the saying is, figure out what it is you want to do, and the money will come. Now, you can replace the money with, the resources will come. So you, you figure out, because the worst thing is, somebody can hand it to you on a plate. Oh, here. Nothing was ever handed to me on a plate musically ever. Partly yes. because I'm working class and partly because one of my, probably one of my biggest problems as a musician is a word that wasn't used 30, 40 years ago, but is used now all the time is eclectic. I cannot, 
It's not that I can't stick to one style. I don't understand staying to one style. If I write a heavy metal song tomorrow, I write yeah. a heavy metal song. I don't care. Although I don't believe yeah. there's such a thing as a heavy metal song, but you know the point I'm making. So yeah, I'll yeah, back yeah. the person come over. First of all, you have to. It's almost like how do you how do you break a huge huge boulder in half with a small hammer and a chisel? You have to just keep yeah. hitting it, hitting it, keep and hitting it. And you have to be, and the person who really wants to break that boulder in half will stay with it. And if there's a thousand people with a thousand little hammers and a chisel, 995 of them will walk away after a while. It's the people who stay that eventually one day the boulder will just go. If that's an answer, that's an answer that most people will go, what? But then they don't understand. The people who do understand no. will go. They're 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 the five that'll stick with it until the boulder's broken half. Yeah. So what does a, a a typical work week look for you then? So you you've broken the boulder. You're over there. You're working. You're you you've made a career out of this. You're completely self sufficient. You're doing amazing. What does a, a typical work week look like for a musician in 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 your position? Well, I can only speak for myself because some musicians mm-hmm. have day jobs. I don't. Um, I took, prior to the lockdowns, I was doing 250 shows a year on average. And yeah. different years it would be, I, I spent one year, I spent 14, 14 weeks out of a year for three years, every year for three years in Washington, D.C. I was, it was a case of almost driving and driving back. There was times where I was in Vegas an awful lot. Um, then there were times where I traveled around to Florida and different places, like a short mini tour. At one year, I went to France in three weeks. There's nothing typical, but if you tried to bring it down to typical, it, when I was in Times Square, and I had to type the King of Times Square, I would play, there could be weeks where I played Times Square five nights in a row, one night off. Could be 12 nights yeah. in a row with two nights off. So I basically, in the daytime, I might just like do stuff at home. I could be learning yeah. songs, could be cleaning the house. Uh, for, for a while there, I, I would get up and over over a period of time and light the fire here in the billiard room and write the book that I that I have coming out next year. But ultimately at night time you get spruced up, get in the car, drive down the city, park the car, get the gear in and entertain people. And you could have a gig where you destroyed the place. Everybody was going that you could have a night where chasing that no was happening that. in town. Fair enough. So it, it's it's the the reason why I asked that is because it's one of these things let me phrase this correctly now. It's one of these things where what you're doing seems like such a big, massive, unattainable thing for us over the end, over this this end of the world. And I'd imagine 25 years ago, Derek of 25 years ago, that didn't know that this lifestyle was as attainable as it has been. Obviously, that, that, I'm not saying you had that in hand to you, you had to work for it. But I'd imagine 25 years ago, it would have seemed like this massive, big, unattainable, like almost mythical existence do you know I mean a mythical sort of um lifestyle but it seems very similar to if not exactly the same as to like my week to week if I was gigging five six nights a week or if I was back home in, in Eden Derry and I was gigging in Temple Bar five or six nights a week seems like very much the same so it's probably it's it, what I'm trying to get at this is that while it might seem like a massive big in unattainable dream it probably isn't as unattainable or it is definitely achievable if you put the work in. Well, it's very, very interesting that you say that because, again, you hit the nail on the head. 
my brother, my older brother, Alan, he says to me one time, a couple of years ago, he says, you have to realize how far you've come. Because if somebody had said to you 25 years ago, oh, you're going to be called the king of Times Square. You're going to be living in your lovely house and driving your Cadillac and releasing albums and, you know, playing with famous people and being respected for being a great musician, all these things. And somebody said that to you 25 years ago, that you'll be that. You'd be like, really? Really? Or somebody told you about this guy from Crumlin who was considered the king of Times Square, blah, 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 blah. He said, you'd, you'd be like, wow. He said, you have to realize that yourself. So it, it, it would have seemed unattainable. I would have, but it's kind of similar to being married with kids and having a mortgage 25 years ago. I'd be like, because I never wanted to get married to have kids. No. It's not too much fun. Sure enough. Yeah, <laughs> too much fun. Yeah. No, I know, more, I know what you mean. It's a this time, even this time last year, I never even never thought I'd be doing a podcast. I never didn't even think I'd enjoy doing a podcast, and it's like one of my favorite things in the world to do now. Um, even more so than gigging, I'm not actually even gigging anywhere near as much as I used to at all. I've cut down big time just because I want to spend more time doing this sort of stuff. So, um, it is, it, it, it's, 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 it's good to hear that, um, it's good to hear that you weren't just born as Derek Dempsey, that you had to work your way to Derek Dempsey, but that Derek Dempsey is. A very, is achieve an achievable and attainable goal for people to set or their version of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I like the way you put that. It sounds very fancy, but yeah. David Bowie said something. I don't even know whether I agree with it or not. But the, the, the thing about getting old or older is you eventually become the person who you're supposed to be. And I actually, in a way, do agree with that because when you're born, like a when, when, couple of months before you're born, you're not Barry Carroll. You're not the second oldest in the family or whoever you're. You're not from Eden Derry. You're just this this life force being born. And then when, the minute yeah. you're born, you're called Barry. You're this position in the family. You're going to sleep in this room. You're on this road. You're this class, working, middle, whatever. You're from this country. And within, before you even get back to your house, get out of the hospital, there's so many yeah. layers on you. So by the time you get to being a young teenager, you've got all these layers on you. You don't know who the hell you are. And you spend the rest of your life trying to find who you are. Now, I think artists have a better time at that. You know, I, I yeah. never had a problem understanding who I was. And to this day, it's other people seem to have a problem understanding who I am. Now, I don't care. But for some reason, a lot of people seem to want to label me who I am. And I, I've gotten to the stage where I just say to people, well, that's not who I am. I mean, yeah, no, not- I, I get you. I, I, I think a lot of creative people are like that. It's, it's the whole thing of creatives... Creative people, artists, musicians, writers, painters, sculptors, whatever you want to call it. The thing we do is fun and we get a lot of enjoyment out of it. Do you know what I mean? And we get a lot of, and, it, and it's something that you can do from an early age. Uh, it's not like you have an aspiration to be a guard, a police, uh, policeman, police person, police officer, whatever you want to call it, or you have aspirations to be a teacher. That's great. Have those aspirations. But you don't know what that's like until you're an adult and you've got the qualifications and you've gone, you've done it. You might not like it. You might not like it at all. Whereas, um, I've got a lot of guitar students that are seven and they can literally start preparing themselves if they wanted, if they had the wherewithal, the wherewithal about them at all, they could start preparing for their career right now this second at seven years old and at 77 years old, still getting the same enjoyment out, out of that thing. So, it goes back, it, it, it sort of ties in with what you're saying that, that we know who, who we want to be better than people who aren't as creative is probably the, the wrong way of, no, probably, creative is probably, it's, it's probably the easiest way to label it. But um, yeah, again, another bit of a rambling there, but I hope that that makes sense. I, you mentioned there a book you're writing. 
What's the crack? What's the call? What's the book called? What's it about? Well, the book that's coming out that's finished is called Anthony's Aria, the story of a working class opera god. Quite a mouthful, but yeah, uh, literally, literally, Anthony, you know, an aria is a is a piece of music from an opera. Yep. I know that from the Legend of Zelda games. There's a game called Ocarina of Time where he plays loads of tunes on his ocarina to, and there's, they're all called like Aria and oh, Rhapsody and all sorts of things. So yeah, there you go. Right. Well, you, a better way of explaining it for most people know the movie Shawshank Redemption. Yep. The part where Andy Dufresne locks the door of the office and he puts on the gramophone, he puts on an opera piece by Mozart and he yeah. plays it on the speaker out into the yard. That's an area. Yeah. That's called that's the, yeah. that's Sularia from the opera we were talking about earlier, uh, the Marriage of Figaro. Anyway, so right. I, not a lot of people probably listening, and there's people listening going, "What is he explaining?" You wouldn't believe how many people ask me. Anthony's what? So it's only for the people who don't know what an area is. So Anthony's area, the story of a working class opera god. It's basically about a guy from Dublin. It's not autobiographical, although there's certain characters in it that I put my voice in. He's not one of them. Yeah. He's a big, tall, you know, slightly overweight guy. Mad about, loves Johnny Logan. I love Johnny Logan. I actually interviewed him. Johnny Logan's a great singer. That's a brilliant yeah. singer. And his mate Maggot loves uh, Freddie Mercury, and they're always arguing about who's the best singer. Yeah. But Anthony is half Italian. His name is Fusco. So he's literally, his grandfather was born in Italy. He's a, um, a stone mason. And uh, like right. he, he always claim and he's related to Michelangelo. But Anthony harbors this secret love to be an opera singer. But he's mad for the drink and he's always drink. I don't drink, so that's... I, I cannot express how much this Anthony character has nothing of me in him. There's other characters in the book who do, not Anthony. Yeah. So he basically nice. gets drunk one night during one of the big World Cups. It's set in the 90s. And he's so drunk he gets nice. up and he sings now Norma. And yeah. uh, he's brilliant. And his mates, he falls down drunk on the ground. His mates tell him the next day, you were brilliant. You were like Pavarotti. He's like, what? Doesn't even remember doing it. So they get him sober, get him to the local karaoke competition. And he's discovered in the most bizarre way by a guy who works for the Metropolitan Opera. Um, he's a set designer, um, you know, art, art, artistic um, designer for the Met. And yeah. he hears this working class guy going, oh, I'm going to sing Nest in Dorman. Can't even pronounce the name of the area. Called Nessun Dorman, none shall sleep. So he, he says he gets his phone out. I'm going to videotape this, send it back to the director of the Met, Hilary Hadrian. Yeah. Have a laugh with the guy, you know? But the guy starts yeah. singing. Unbelievable. He has the best voice. He sends it back to the, to the director of the Metropolitan, Hilary Hadrian. And she's like, Who is this God? You know, it's fiction. So she gets yeah. into America and the story is based around that and his relationship and his, his, girl, his girlfriend, who they're going to get married, is called Cleo. And, you know, there's all these different stories and there's different characters. And um, he uh, ends up, obviously, there's a nemesis that's that's an opera singer that's from a wealthy family that, you know, he doesn't want him taken over. And there's all types of mad stuff. As, as the Dutch Jacker will probably say, it, it goes yeah. from murder, revenge, cross-dressing, death, um, revenge. It's all types of mad stuff. So that's that book that's coming out, hopefully, by spring. With um an independent publishing, it's it's done. It's you know, yeah. The one I'm working on, the one I'm working on at the moment is called um, Perfidious Albert, the story of a Saxon psychopath. It's not related to the book per se, but it's uh. Will, will I give you a quick synopsis? 
Go for it. Yeah, I'm loving this. This sounds amazing. I when, when you see when you said you were writing the book, I thought it was going to be something along the lines of, oh, I don't know, how to conquer New York and become the king of Times Square or something along those lines, something musical. Oh, yeah, let, let, let's write that one. That one sounds class. When I thought it was going to be music related, but this isn't, well, in, 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 in the way that I thought it was music related. It's like, it's like, it's fiction, is it? It's fiction, but like all fiction, it's, it's got, it's, yeah. it's a vehicle for my, and I, I've no, I've no problem saying this. It's a vehicle for my uh, love of, I'm going to sound like a gobshite of human rights. I don't understand anything else but human rights. Like the, the lacking yeah. in human rights throughout the world. What's going on in Iran? Right now at the yeah, moment, yeah, and many, yeah. but you know, it's like, are you kidding me? Just people dying because of a piece of cloth. So within Anthony's area, there, it's a vehicle. I, I'm not I'm unashamedly to, for me to to say what I have to say. If two people read it, well, so be it. I'm not saying what I have to say so that millions of people can hear. It. I'm saying what I have to say because I have to say it. And yeah. um, you know, there's a lot of things about the the idea. There's a, there's you know, women's rights in it. My, my main character, uh, Cleo, is, is is the what I would call the the moral uh, uh, voice of the novel. Um, that's his girlfriend, and uh, as one of one of the one of the times her sister says to her, "Get off your high horse." I get off your soapbox, and she says, "No, I'm just using my soapbox to propel me to get on my high horse. You're not going to get uh, me off." Either. Very um, good. So. So that's that book. So Anthony's art, uh, uh, Perfidious Albert. Have you, you been a man from where you're from? Have you he- ever heard the word perfidious? I have heard the word perfidious, but I couldn't really explain it to you. Have you ever heard the phrase perfidious Albion? No. It's in the song. Oh. It's in, it's in, um, I think it's in the Foggy Dew. It, it was ringing a bell and I was thinking it was something to do with West Bromwich Albion. I thought that's where I recognised it from, but no, you're right. Well, here's the thing. Rome is called Ireland Hibernia. Yeah. We know that. So if some yeah. of you had a love of Ireland, like my friend David Dash, who's my lyric co-writer, he would be a Hibernophile. And he's also yeah. an Anglophile, which a lot of Americans are Anglophiles. They love they love England and everything. I love a lot of English things, for Christ's sake. The book I'm working on is called Perfidious Albert. Perfidious Albert is a play on the phrase Perfidious Albion, which is what the Romans used to call Britain because perfidious and underhanded and sly was what they what what they were in in battle and uh, so the Romans called them perfidious Albion so underhanded sly Britain no right. the British people it's yeah, just no. the way it was it's history so it is. my character is called perfidious Albert his name is Albert Norbury but he's a personification of of Britain and the whole novel has about nine different main characters uh, Emmett O'Claire is the Irish guy and he he represents um, Ireland. During the famine, so the whole book opens with a scene where Perfidious Albert he's a he's a gangster in New York, and they're all part of a gangster family, and uh, he's basically a sociopath who throws people out of windows when he doesn't like them, which is called defenestration, which was a thing that they did back in the in the in the uh, uh, in Italy back in, I, I guess in the 14th, 15th century there was a famous yeah. um, king who did it, but um, so I kind of establish who he is, an absolute sociopath which is what I would call Britain and what it did to the world, what it did to Ireland, to Africa, so many nations. Yeah. Like, like, that's another story for another day. But And he's a personification of it. But he also has the leader of the Irish crime family kidnapped in a, um, 
in a warehouse under a, 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 a an apartment building that he owns. At, in the basement, he has him tied to a, a, a radiator, the old traditional radiator tie-up, and he has him starving. And they go in there once a week and have a feast in front of him and throw potatoes at him and mock him for his Catholicism. Um, uh, but what it is, is he's basically, he's down to about 95 pounds. So it's representing that, what the famine. And what was done yeah. literally, the British were having a feast while the Irish were dying from famine. And then there's, yeah. there's other characters that represent what happens in, happened in India, what happened to the Native Americans and all these things. So, but it's, it's a little bit centered around, kind of inspired by the whole Brexit thing. And so that goes from there. And I'm loving it. I, I mean, it's almost the whole idea. I, don't, I see things in me like a movie. I'll see a song finish before it's done. I know it's just getting to the, to getting other people to see yeah. it. Right? I only have to write down. So there's many, many different characters. One character you love, it's not a character, but there's a family that live in a boat on the Hudson Valley. Very, very wealthy. But anyway, yeah. b- basically, it's, it's pretty heavy book. Sounds absolutely amazing. It sounds absolutely fantastic. I'm sold on both of them. I really was not expecting to get you on today to talk about music and be talking about um, the personification of uh, of uh, post colonialism. <laughs> you, like, you can you can write the Dutch jacket for the second book. I will do. Yeah, Perfidious Perfidious Abbey and the story of a of a Saxon psychopath. Literally the personification of post colonialism. Well, there you go. You can you can quote that. Yeah, hundred percent. That's amazing. And amidst amidst all of that, um, that writing and 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 all that other stuff, you're also you, you well, you're about to release a single, and you've got an album on the way as well, have you? Right. So the single is just released, like literally in the last couple of days. But the way singles are released these days, it's dribs and drabs all over. It's the song is called, um, the face in the window. Uh, yeah. I I've been writing with a friend of mine, an American guy from Brooklyn, and. Uh, We've been writing lyrics together. We wrote my last release, which was released a couple of years ago, was a Christmas song called Every Christmas. We co-wrote the lyrics. I write, I rarely co-compose musically, but I'd be open to it. But he's great. He's he's, he's classically educated. He's one of the few people in me who's educated in Greek and and Latin. And his father was a doctor. Um, He's just a brilliant mind. So his, his command of the English language there's a lyric in the song, um, and the ghost of Brendan Bean, all champagne, sherry, blear. Now, he, he said to me one day, do you, do you know the word blear? And I said, well, no, I know the word bleary and bleary-eyed. Bleary-eyed, yeah, yeah, that's what I was oh, going with. It's, it's basically, I, I don't know what the, the proper term is. It's, it's, it's the, the noun of, of bleary. The origin of blear or whatever you want to, or yeah, bleary or whatever you want to call all, it. Yeah. All champagne, sherry, blear. And I was like, fucking brilliant. And only he'd come up with that, you know. Uh, forever seeks the shoeless Paris parish children. This is where I lived. That's the um, end of the chorus. Now we wrote that together. I don't know how we got to the, the, the forever seeks. To, actually, I know how we got to it. My mother was telling me that she lived across the road from Random Bean and around the corner yeah. from Linen. So as you talked yeah. about earlier on, what's in the war or something in the war there. But she yeah. said she used to see, as a, as a young preteen, she'd see the Beans leave their house all happy and, you know, jolly. And then they'd be coming back singing and rebel songs. And then an hour later, you could time and she said, they'd be out in the garden punching their head off each other. But when Brendan Bean was at the height of his fame and he was wealthy, she'd see him in the early 50s walking up Calair Road, which is where my mother and father were born and I was raised, handing out money to the poor kids. And this is what 
a thing about artist, a great artist. I do not believe that any great artist is lacking this empathy. And Brendan Bean, you could see it in him. I mean, Matt said you could see him. He couldn't get the money out of his pockets quick enough to give to the kids. You know, and I think yeah. his empathy probably killed him. I think the, I think empathy killed Elvis. I think that, that empathy killed Michael Jackson. I think yeah. Amy Winehouse, that sorrow that just comes into it. Now, there are some people um, that are able to handle it. But I, I think the yeah. great, great, great big artists can't. So it's so called Face in the Window. You can find it on iTunes, Derek Dempsey, A Face in the Window. Music by Dempsey, lyrics by Dempsey and Dash. Uh, it is a ballad, I suppose. Piano-based, strings, orchestra, uh, drums and bass. That's it. It's only really, and then yeah, vocals. I listened to it the other day. It's 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 lovely. I think I, I texted you after and said it, it it does. It reminds me of one of those songs like um, scenes from an Italian restaurant by Billy Joel. That it's like it just it's there, there's it's always moving and there's like it's it's always sort of stepping up a key, stepping up a key, stepping up a key, and then it sort of resolves itself at the end. Lovely. It's 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 good work for what it's worth. Well done. <laughs> well, thanks. Well, you know there is well, quick history of the song. Two thousand and seventeen in October, I had a flight booked and my wife called me and said listen your flight fl- flight's been delayed by three hours because of the snow so i'm right. like well i'm already leaving four hours early because that's one thing i've learned i'm not the most punctual person but when it comes to a flight international i want to give myself three hours after i get through security because otherwise yeah, i'm yeah. panicking so i said all right i'm out of time i sat down with a banjaxed guitar i don't even know why that could might be my daughter's guitar in my office on the other side of the house there. And I started picking through an A chord. Actually, it was a D. I changed the key later. And I wrote the, four, the first part. Is anybody's listening to the song now. The lyric is snowing and I'm leaving New York. I called her. She was happy to talk. I bought an expensive magazine. And I watched the planes take off on the mezzanine. So I'm, I wrote that there. And then the second verse. Um, I can't remember the second verse. Uh, what's the place to go from the mezzanine? I thought about this morning and smiled. I hadn't seen that look in a long while. I made the gate to wait for my flight. The snow looked bright and beautiful on the wings of night. The majority of those lyrics are, are, are unchanged from 2017. I recorded right. it, got, got, on, got on the car a little while later and uh, traveled to the airport. And I forgot I wrote a ton of lyrics on the plane. I tend to write, I write a lot when I'm flying. I don't know what it is. It yeah. just comes to me. So then life took over. Some other fucking problem happened in life and I forgot the song. And just before Thanksgiving, I found the song, sent it to my writing partner, David. He wrote back to me, where the hell were you hiding this? He said, we got to work in this. It's, it's, it's beautiful. So we sat down over about six weeks, once, twice, three times a week, and we start working on it. So while we were working on the lyrics, you know how it is. So as a, for anybody who composes, actually composes music or, or whatever, songs, you, you want... You know, I'm learning all the time about writing and, I, and, and the, move, yeah. the movement of the chords are with the story. So you, you're picking up on something that was very intentional. You know, it, it sets the whole beginning sets up getting to the airport, getting on the plane. And then all of a sudden you're, you're up in the sky and then you're over in Ireland and then the whole thing changes. But the reason for all those changes is because there's so many changes. You're going inside your brain. You're having memories. You're talking about and probably making absolutely no sense to anybody who doesn't write. But those changes. The changes are intentional, but they just came to me within the lyric. It was just like like a, like building a, a, a house and you go, all right, we got this, so why don't we put this over here? I, 
I'm making no sense to myself, Ian Ross. No, no, I, I, I kind of half get you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna relate it back to how I'm relating that back to myself. In that, I, I grew up reading Harry Potter. I still love Harry Potter as, as an adult, and. I've watched loads of interviews with J.K. Rowling and stuff like that. And she says that back in whenever it was, 1991 or whatever, that when she was sat in that cafe in Edinburgh, she was a struggling writer. And Harry just walked straight into her head, fully formed with his entire life story around her. And it was literally just a matter of just getting that information from her, from her, her head out onto the piece of paper. And it sounds like your, 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 your sort of process is exactly the same. The song just started, sort of formed itself and you just had to get it out of you. It's the same with my my books and any stories. There you my, go. My, my problem is, and some people might take this the wrong way, but my mind doesn't give me much rest. I don't know why it is, and I, I I've accepted it, but it, I can only yeah. describe it as a as a busy airport with planes coming in and going, but mostly coming in. So it's constantly mm-hmm. is I, I I've got a, a, another book that it's in my head almost fully formed about Elvis and. And uh, Phil Lynott meeting in 1978 because Elvis didn't die. He came out of the hospital and admitted he was a drug addict. And he went with his record company. He went on um, on a personal tour of Europe, got rid of Colonel Tom Parker, went with his girlfriend, married her in Paris. His record company called him and said, you got to see this young Irish guy. I think you love him. He loves you. Here's tickets to see him in the Sydney Opera House. So he goes, he goes backstage. Lynott meets Elvis. And Elvis says to him, I know you're on the drugs. you got to get off. And I stop. I just don't have the fucking time to sit down and write it. So the process that you said that, that J.K. Rowling, I think that happens to all artists. Well, all, and I said this in an interview I did when I was in Dublin for some Los Angeles film company and making a, a documentary on Philip Lynott. And the thing I've been saying for years is, all an artist is, is a conduit. We're a channel. I say we, I consider myself an artist. and I'm lucky that a lot of ideas come through me. And we have to be grateful for those ideas to come through. You're a conduit for these ideas. Why we'll never understand. I wouldn't even begin to understand. Why is art? Why does art exist? Why do we have to have Harry Potter? Why do we have to have Dorian Gray? Why do we have Shakespeare? Why do we have these things? But it seems that art creation speaks to the human condition. Look at what Harry Potter did. Harry Potter changed the world. Yeah. Changed the world. And Harry Potter spawned writers that we don't even know about yet. Filmmakers that we don't need. In 40 years, we will have, when we're maybe on our last breath, we'll have composers, writers, filmmakers saying, it was J.K. Rowling that made me be this. And artists that are probably going to be bigger than J.K. Rowling. So there's something about art that we'll never understand. So yes, that is the way the process works. I have another song that I wrote years ago called Breathing Like an Alien. And my friend Kerry, who wrote the lyrics with me, she's deaf. And she was oh. And I said, you've broken up with a boyfriend. And I said, look, you know, we go through these things. I understand the pain you're feeling. Blah, blah, blah. I said, but other, other than that, how are you feeling? And she said these words to me. I find it hard being human. So I'm breathing like an alien. And boom, I wrote the song. So it all came to me fully formed. I just had to find the chords and where it went. And I sat outside yeah. three mornings in a row with my mother-in-law writing the song. So that, that came to me fully formed. Uh, I, myself and David are working on two songs right now. One is called um, Solve the Family Affair, which came from something that a great singer in New York uh, called Carlton Smith, great soul singer, said something to me. I was like, yeah, Solve the Family Affair. That's fully formed, just got to finish it. Another one called The Cardboard Man, which is the life of my father. 
from the minute he was born to he died because he worked in a factory making cardboard boxes. That, right. Where I can hear them, it's, but it, yeah. it's, it's almost like seeing him through smudged glasses. Right. And you just got to clean the glass and get to them. I don't know. I can't explain it. But yeah. I know. I, I, I know what you mean. Just when you said there about your mind being like an airport, I'm exactly the same. And everybody else that I've spoken to, uh, well, not everybody else I've spoken to on the podcast, but a lot of people I've spoken to on the podcast, a lot of just, it goes back to being creative. It's just, that's what we're like. Um, it's it's just one of these these things that we have probably 99% of, of our ideas are completely mental and stuff. But every now and then you do come across one that is kind of, it does stick. But it is, it's it's hard to get a break from yourself sometimes. I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you, I used to think, and I'd say this to you, none of your ideas are mental. All of your ideas are great. Yeah. Get that get that into your head. And I don't mean to sound like I'm, I'm almost like giving out to you, but I'm advising you as a guy who's 20 years older, I've learned all of my ideas are great. Not because of my ideas, because they're coming from somewhere. I suppose, actually, yeah. I'm walking and they're coming through me. And I have to grab them while they're there. It's not my fault. It's not my blame. It's not, I'm not taking credit. I'm just lucky. It's like walking down the street and the wind comes at your face. It's just there they are. It just happens. I know. Yeah. So they're all great ideas, Barry. Remember that. Write that down. I will. I'm going to write that. Down. Well, I, 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 I obviously think they're they're great ideas. I'm, I'm, I'm basing that on on the fact that 99.9 percent of them don't work. But anyway, it's probably just because I haven't made them work. But speaking of good ideas, you're all, you've also written a play, have you? Or you're you're writing a play? Well, it's funny. I never took. I never told you that, but I, I am working on a play with another uh, friend of mine, um, Nick, young, young guy from Florida. Well, he's originally from New York. Super brilliant, brilliantly talented guy. He's a Shakespearean right. actor. Now, he hasn't done many plays, but he, I can guarantee it. Uh, Nick Trankina. Trankina, Trankina. I can never get his last name pronounced right. Because Anyway, but the play That's is about it. these. So I'll tell you in, in one minute. The play opens up with two street drug addicts. One is Irish, one is American. Both musicians. Um, and they're on the streets and um, in New York in the morning after the needles in their arms. But they started off life Seemingly normal, one in one in uh, Montana and one back in, in uh, somewhere in Ireland. I haven't decided, we haven't decided where. But they're both very talented musicians, but they've had past traumas. So they get signed up, they're traveling all over America, and they, they get dropped the record. They get dropped in a record company, and they're not strong enough because of the past traumas they have um, that they end up, you know, they, they had a bit of fame, they had the record company, they, everything's lost, they hit the drugs real hard. They end up losing their apartment in New York and uh, they're basically on the streets. But it, it, again, it's another thing pointing at why do we have drug addicts on the streets? It's another, I guess, human rights thing of let's look at, you know, let's not just walk by a person who's homeless and go, ah, you scumbag, get a job, which a lot of people do. You got to be, you got to understand why they got there. So it's kind of, it's kind of based on that, but there's some funny stuff in it. And again, you may put this in or out, but one of them is always making up stories you know about that guy in the tour bus that always be making up stories yeah 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 one of them yeah the, uh, the uh the american i think it's the irish guy um again this is how early it is in the form he he always makes up stories that, like he's mad into uh, charles dickens so his mate says from do you do your your marley story from from um from a christmas carol and you know the christmas carol, carol story yeah 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 jacob marley it, Jacob Marley is the ghost that comes along and tells him about the three ghosts you meet. So 
your man, the Irish guy, had this idea. Instead of Jacob Marley coming in and haunting him, it was Bob Marley. <laughs> he does this whole scene about, I make this, I, make, I build these chains yard by yard, man. You know, he's telling about the ghost and then midnight and you nobody's know, smoking too many doobies. Man. Ridiculous stuff. But so does comedy in it. And so, so yeah, you're probably really? taking it out. No, it's it's that's that's all sounds amazing. It's just uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything uh, like that you're not doing currently. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Cook. Like literally, huh? I don't cook. You don't cook, great. Well, then I I won't I won't be expecting to see a cookbook from you anytime soon. But no, I think I can expect to see pretty much ev- everything else. In fairness, um, it's usually at this point where I would say uh, I'd ask guests, um, what are you working on now? But like. Barry, sorry, I misunderstood you. I am, I am involved in a play. I'm so sorry. Because you said writing a play. I'm not, that's where I misunderstood you. You know, Larry Pure on Black 47. Legend. Legend. One of the most right. talented people you meet. I don't know how. You think I work? This guy, I don't think he ever sleeps. So right. Par- Paradise Square was uh-huh. a musical that was on Broadway last year. And right. uh, it was written by, by Larry. A few other people involved, but Larry had the... Uh, original idea he invited me and my wife to we, we had to see it last i guess it was about last september yeah. and it was great and we went across the road and, and 47th street to a restaurant next to the main fiddler and as we were sitting there lisa said to me is that larry uh, larry q and so we, he, yeah. we just he just happened to be coming into town that night so we had a chat about the play and i talked about a particular line in the play that was great about about uh, a time in 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 around Lincoln's presidency, uh, around the Civil War, where Irish and African Americans lived together in harmony, but but the powers that be put, spoke in the wheel because they didn't want that, which is another story for another day, you know. Yeah. So he said that line. He said it was so hard to keep that in, and I have a, I always got this ear, where you, you hear those special lines, you hear how to deliver the weight of them, so. As Larry was walking away, he said to me, do, do you act? And my wife said, he should be acting. Acting the maggot. So I said, yeah, I'm acting. So he said, I got, I got something. So he sent me this um, script for a play called uh, The Informer, based on the famous play, The Informer. And it was a movie by John Ford. And it's set in 1923, which basically we're in 2023 now, 100 years after the, the, the end of the revolution and all that, that went on and the separation of our, of our country. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, the guy that's producing it is a guy called Bobby Maresco. He's the Hollywood director that did uh, Crash, the movie from 2004. Masterpiece. He won an Academy Award. Larry won an award. For that. They won a, an Emmy for um, the play that Larry did. And then really? Bobby Maresco just released Lamborghini. That's a big Hollywood movie. So their play called a musical play, I'm, they asked me to be in it. So I, went, I, I, I said, love to be. So we've done a few readings and I'm, I'm, the, I'm the blind street singer. And um, nice. uh, it's been developed for Broadway, so I can only hope it gets fully to Broadway next year. So who knows? That'd be amazing. That's so cool. That is so, so cool. I always thought of, like, way, way, way back when, when I was working in all these other jobs, I had no interest in, in, in doing just because I couldn't make a full-time out of music. I always wondered, I was like, how would you go about making a full-time in music? And I was like, if I was go, if I was to go to America, I could go and work on Broadway. I, I wouldn't even have to sing. I'd just play guitar on Broadway. And and to me, that was a that was a, a genuine like I I I like uh not so much uh a wish like kind of more of a a plan. 
I was like, I could do that. Right. How do I go about doing that? But then it was like, that's uh, sorry, I'm 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 rambling here again. But yeah, that that sounds so cool. I really hope that makes it to Broadway. I really, really do, because that sounds amazing. That sounds absolutely amazing. Brilliant. It's it's a brilliant. I mean, I, I have the script here I've been in. I sang there's seven songs in it, and most of them are yeah. original. One of them is a Clancy Brothers song. Uh, um, I'm bidding farewell to the land of my youth. Beautiful song. Yeah. And the home I love so well. So it's kind of a little... Now, I'm by no means a Shanlow singer, but it's that style with the, with the great yeah. style. And the ocean of my own native land, I'm bidding them all adieu. So it's that type of style, but there's, there's one original song in it, which I won't say out about it, because I don't want to give out the surprise. surprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Larry, well, Larry wrote, Larry wrote all the music that's original, but there's one of the songs. I'll just use the word, the word pilgrim. Ah. Christ. It's as, it's as good as that song, um, Wayfaring Stranger. It's a famous All right. Oh, man, shiver singing it. And I get to sing this song. Right. So, Derek, before we finish up then, uh, and before we head into a quick, quick fire round, of all the experiences that you've had uh, and all the, the, the stuff you've done in your, in your career, and I know I've kind of already asked this already, but let's, let's, let's bring it back to a more kind of um, a, a, a initial uh, advice. What would you give? What advice would you give to anybody that wants to start a career in music, be it be it writing or be it teaching or be it anything to do with music? What would your advice be from day one? Well, I have to quote Bob Dylan: "Always, always keep a clear head and carry a light bulb." Right. Okay, I like it. I, I, I think what he means by that is keep a clear head, keep a clear head and carry a light bulb, meaning carry a light, be a beacon and always have an idea. But, but my own my own advice, I don't know. I mean, what's the question again? Sorry, that sounds stupid. No, it's, it's basically just like what, what, what advice would you give to someone that wants to start out a career? In, in music. This is what this podcast is all about. Okay. Speaking to people who have, who, who have done it in the hopes that we inspire some others to do the same. Yeah, but how would you. you inspire someone, do you think? How would you inspire someone to, to start a career in music? Don't. <laughs> no, I tell, you, I tell you, do it because you love it. Don't do it for, as they say, don't do it, don't do drugs. I mean, that's, I sound like a fucking idiot. Don't do drugs. I don't understand drugs. You know, be careful how much you drink. I don't drink alcohol, so it's easy for me to say it. I never did. But ultimately, do it because you love it. Don't do it for the fame. Don't do it for, you know, because you want to be like your hero. Do it because you need to do it. Not because you want people to love you and because you want fame. I mean, do it if you want to. And then there's millions of people doing it like that. I don't know if I can give sound advice because people are going to follow it away. But if you, I tell you what, if you are an artist and you know you are, you might question yourself, but if you're an artist, you'll know you are, then you've no choice. You have no choice. It's kind of like, how, do, how are you going to accept eventually dying? Well, we're all going to die. So just live the best you can. Live as healthy as you can. Live as kindly as you can. So I say the same as, as to a musician. If you're an artist, whatever it is, painting, dancing, singing, rolling up in carpets and jumping off a mountain, whatever your thing is, just do it with honesty, do it with passion and stick to it and don't listen to too many other people and make sure you have food. 
I think that's probably the soundest advice that you could, you could, you could give. Um, and it's, it's, it's so true. It is, it's one of these things that you just, you, it is, you kind of have to do it for years when I was in those jobs, I didn't want to be doing, um, and I'm not knocking the job. They just weren't for me, but it was just, I always, you, you, you go through almost like depression, uh, because you feel restricted and, and held back. And like, you feel like you're lying to yourself. Honest to God, it, it sounds so dramatic when you put it oh, like that, right. but it is. It's, it's, it's right though. It is. Barry, yeah. Depression. Depression is not something that that just comes from, from, from. I've been depressed in my life a few times, and the most depressed I ever got was because I had la- lost absolute control of my life in every way. And the biggest thing was I lost control of my music life. I, I had let a situation take control, and I was no longer writing. And I had said to myself, I guess I wasn't meant to be a writer. And this was, this was about 16 years ago. And I copped onto myself one in it took about six months. And I copped onto myself and said, What the fuck? And that's yeah. when I was depressed because I wasn't following. Some people would say I wasn't following the spirit. And in a way, like the Romans talked about the, the, the god of um, inspiration, Cecilia, which is where the song Cecilia comes from. It's not about a girl taking us, but Cecilia, a break. You know, listen to the song. It's about inspiration. Yeah, I know it. I know it very well. I, so, so the, 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 Airplanes of inspiration that were coming into my airport, I was stopping them. And as somebody might say, Bob Dylan would say, the gods weren't happy with that. Now, that might seem like a grand thing. I don't believe in gods, but I have to use yeah. something to explain it. And I, know, I don't think, I'm not being grand about myself at all, but the ideas are there and I was ignoring them. And that's where depression comes from. Yeah. So basically, just be yourself, make it happen because. It has to happen. Sounds like a plan. Cool. Right. Before we finish up, let's head into a quick fire round. If people haven't gotten a, a, a good idea of what you're about in the past hour and a half, this will hopefully uh, <laughs> this will hopefully get them get them there. So just a handful of questions that have no real bearing on on on, on anything at all. Just a bit of crack. Favorite film, Derek? I'm a bit of a cinephile. Um, mm. I mean, I love Goodfellas, but then I'd say Farewell, My Concubine, and people would go, "What masterpiece?" Citizen Kane. I'm a huge Chaplin fan. So, but I couldn't tell you that, like my, uh, the kid, Chaplin, 1921, is one of my favorite movies of all time. But I can't pick a, a, a one sim, single movie. So I'd say the kid, any of Chaplin's great movies, Citizen Kane, um, uh, A Dog's Life by Lassie Halstrom. I, I can't give you an answer to that one. Just everyone should always watch watch films all the time, every day. I love I love movies, yeah. Good stuff. Sounds like a plan. Chaplin to me is the greatest ever lived. Love it. I love it. I loved Jackie Chan when I was a kid, and he would have said the exact same thing that he loved Charlie Chaplin growing up. I'll go back to what I said. If you like as an artist, if you haven't got empathy, you're not an artist. If you don't, as a filmmaker or a film lover, if you don't understand Chaplin, get your shit together and understand them. Find your way to understand them. Read his autobiography. The guy was a master in everything. There you go. Good stuff. I love it. Right. In the sim- in a similar sort of vein, have you got a favourite album? There are certain albums I couldn't live without. Uh, Madame Butterfly, but the particular recording, 1976 or 74, Decca Records, Pavarotti in the male lead, uh, Mirella Farini in the female lead, conducted by Herbert von Karajan. I can't live without the album. Just, I even have the cover on my wall over there. Four or five Sinatra albums, um, Only the Lonely, uh, Watertown Cycles, um, 
Tony Hill Adams, Diamond Dogs, Bowie, um, Barbara Streisand, Classical Barbara. There are a few albums that I couldn't live without, you know. And Fair enough. Again, it's Fair enough, really. Yeah. It's no, it is. It's it's hard to pick one just 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 favorite album, but that's that's probably a better way. Albums that you couldn't live without. I love that. Have you got a favorite word? A favorite word. It used to be lamp, like as in lamp. <laughs> as in I love lamp. <laughs> I love the, of the word lamp. I love certain phrases. Uh, I love words. Actually, it's funny you said it because I love words. I myself and David were. We'd, we'd often just sit talking about wars like two nerd gobshites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but I love, I love the phrase left to collect dust. And it's similar to one of Bowie's lyrics um, in Panic in Detroit. And I, I used it in a book. I could, if anybody used it, it wouldn't. It's only, a, it's only a line. Left to collect dust. So, favorite word? Let's go at one. Fantastic. I love that. Um, tea or coffee? I like I like both, but I, I've 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 divorced myself from coffee a few times and then gotten back with her. But tea, right. I've never left tea. This was this, this is this is always what I think is the most straightforward question because it's like it's like one or the other. But nobody has given a straightforward answer to tea or coffee. Tea or coffee has, prob- has probably gotten <laughs> the most out of out of everybody that I've asked because there's always conditions to it. There is with with, with tea. Two tea bags, squeeze the life out of in boiled water, as my brother Carl's daughter, my niece Alicia, said the other day. You boil the kettle ten times. Has to be. You want the water boiled, and then you want the water boiled. Two tea bags has to be has to be Beaulies. I'll ex- I'll accept a cup of tea off a scabby dog's leg if I've nothing else. But under ideal conditions, Beaulies boil the water, squeeze the life, break the spoon, do a Yuri Geller on the spoon, then put the full fat milk in. A lot of full fat milk. I can't have a cup of tea wrap or chocolate coffee during the when we had the economic crash in two thousand and whatever. The coffee went shy. I gave her up for seven years. My youngest daughter Nikki bought my wife and I a gift of an espresso. She asked me back in the coffee again. There's my answer. Never a simple answer. No, and neither it should be. It deserves the the answer that it gets. Um, what item is worth spending just that little bit more money on? Uh, if I understand your question, I love clothes. I get custom made. Like for years, I've been getting custom-made shirts and uh, suits. But I, for somebody who hadn't got enough money for bus fare or shoes, when I started making money, one of the first things I did was I got two custom-made shorts in 2002 and a custom-made suit and really expensive shoes. And I've never, unless it's a denim short, if I'm wearing a dress shirt, it's custom-made. So that, and I tell people that, you, if you spend money on a short, a designer short, you might spend about two hundred dollars on a, 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 a Dolce and Gabbana short. You'll get a custom made short. You know, you might get one for seventy five dollars to one hundred and twenty. Now I've spent three hundred on it. My last custom made short for my son's wedding was three hundred dollars. Um, my 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 tailor is a woman called Stacy Solo. Great designs, but you, very good. Fit you, and you you might spend the same money on a Dolce and Gabbana. It won't fit you right. Get it made, and you'll never go back. You'll never go back. There you go. Fair enough. That's a, that's, that's a very sensible one. Very, very sensible one. Uh, is there anything you regret spending money on? Yeah, I, I regret spending money on certain albums. Not that I, that, I, that I, I mean, as in recording albums. I recorded an album called Finally. And it's, it's a great album. I'm very proud of some great songs on it. But I was kind of led in the wrong direction. I spent way too much money on the album because certain people involved thought I was wealthy. 
and I certainly wasn't. Uh, and I, I regret right. the amount of money I spent on that. I've learned from that that I don't need to spend that much money on, on recording an album, you know? Not, not nowadays when you could essentially record an album on your phone if you were so inclined to do so. True, but even, even, even without that, I like to record in a studio. I like to record with live musicians. It, you know, you, you, can, you, you can still record in a great studio. It's just that at the time, I was a little bit of a novice in America. I'd only been recording a while in the country and I was led down the garden path by a few people. And, you know, I live in there. Happens to the best of us and as long as you learn, sure, you wouldn't oh, learn well, if you didn't make the mistake. So. And Cadillacs. I've had six Cadillacs and after three of them, I, I should have realised that they were making a North Star engine a piece of crap. Cadillacs should be ashamed of themselves. The last two Cadillacs I had, I regret the amount of money I put into, into the into the repair of them. I'm ashamed of it almost. Oh, really? Pile of shit, are they? Pile, I love Cadillac, but I, they stopped making good cars in about 2000. And some, some would argue with this. An automobile expert would argue with me. Mick McDonald would probably go, they never made good cars. They did. But I'm in a Lexus right now. But, you know, we'll get to a Rolls Royce eventually. Eventually. Well, listen, Cadillac, if you're listening, fucking sort yourselves out, lads. Jesus Christ. Oops. Get it right. Yeah. And then the million dollar question for you, Derek. Usually I say, what would you be doing if you weren't a musician? However, I'm going to say, what would you be doing, do you think, if you hadn't gotten the success in your career that you have just now? All because right. obviously we've spoken about, we've, we've spoken about that as a creative person, you just, you have to get there. It, there's, it's, it's, it's not really a choice. It's more of a, this is just where your life leads you. But, do you ever think what would have happened if your life hadn't gone gone this way? Would you still be chasing the success? What would you be doing? Okay, a roundabout answer. Uh, Helen Keller said, one who desires to fly cannot consent to crawl. Now, that might be a paraphrase, but basically, if you want to soar, you cannot consent to allow people to make you crawl. You have to soar. So that brings us all the way back around to being an artist. I'd still be trying to stop people from making me crawl and I'd still be trying to soar. So if I hadn't have gotten to that stage and, and been, well, I've, always been, I've always been able to express myself. But if, you, if you're liking it too, I've always, let's say all expression is building a house of cards. The amount of times that I was building a house of cards and I'd get two cards up, somebody would come in and stamp on it. Or I'd get the whole house of cards up and somebody would come in and stamp on it. The amount of times that happened to me in my life, it happened up to living here. So I'm using the right. cards as an analogy for any art. Now I've learned how to stop people. I've learned how to right. make my house of cards and make sure that the people who want to open the door, blow down, or tell me it's not that great and not around me. I right. make sure they're around me. You follow me analogy? I do. I got you. I got you. So, so that's what you'd be doing if you weren't a musician. You'd be making sure them people stay. You'd be making better life choices maybe or something no, no, I don't no, know no. How you if I was if I hadn't gotten to being a musician I'd still be trying so the answer is what would I be if I wasn't a musician somebody trying to be a musician because it's in me it's who I am like I, I, I was I, in my mind as grand as this might seem I was born to soar I think we're all born to soar Barry. I don't think there's a person in this world there's no great you know prime mover out there who goes who's this fellow born in where are you, you where are you again born Eden Derry uh, this great Eden fellow Barry, Barry uh, uh, Carroll, born in Eden Derry. Okay, though he, we won't let him soar. We're going to let him do a little bit of crawling and walking. He'll never. No, if there's a if there's a prime mover creator out there, 
in the box of will this person soar, it's a given. We can all soar. Being human is to soar. Is to, is to, is to soar. You know, we're all, we're all fucking eagles. We're all out there. Um, the, human, the, the human ability is incredible. We've proven it, man. We've conquered oceans, mountain base. You know, uh, uh, we're an incredible... Life itself is incredible. So it's other people that stop you from soaring. Picasso said, if a voice, maybe it wasn't Picasso, maybe it was the year fellow, Van Gogh, said, if there's, Gogh, a voice yeah. in your, if there's a voice in your mind telling you, do not paint, by all means paint. Because there's no voice, there's no voice in your mind telling you, Barry, don't go to space. There's never been a voice in your head telling you, don't go to space. A Barry, don't become a ballerina, Barry. Those voices out in your head, it's the voice that, that's in your head that's telling you not to be a famous musician or the greatest guitarist out of Ireland. That's there for a reason. Yeah. That's the voice yeah. of yeah. Now, that's the voice of society speaking. Yeah. So the voices that are telling you what not to do are the voices that you have to listen to because they're telling you not to do what you're supposed to do. It's that might be a little heavy, but I, if anybody wants me to explain it deeper, send me an email. I'll explain it deeper. I know what I'm talking about. No, I, hundred percent. I, I, I agree with you. And uh, you're right. It's, it's, it's deep and it's profound. But fuck it, if you can't get deep and profound on this podcast, then where can you? And on that note, speaking of sending an email, before we finish up, really before we finish up, where can people find you? How can they get in touch with you? I always say to people, Google Derek Dempsey. Failing that, DerekDempsey.com. Grand uh, job. iTunes, YouTube. You can get Derek Dempsey, Derek A. Dempsey. I have an album under the name Jesus Fever. You'll love the cover. Um, love it. Uh, you can get me uh, on, uh, like I said, uh, iTunes, YouTube. You know, we're all Googleable these days. Google, Googleable, Googleable exactly, these yeah. days. And yeah, uh, love you it. can catch me playing at gigs. My new song, "A Facing the Face in the Window," is is out all over the world on iTunes, and it's getting. She's getting great response, like from yourself and you comparing it to uh, scenes in an Italian restaurant, man. That, that, that was big. Well, I'm 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 glad for what for what it's worth. I I, I do genuinely think it is uh, it is very very good, and I make sure that it's um I make I make sure that it's it's linked in the description along with um whatever other Googleable things we can find about you. So listen, Derek, thanks very much for your time today. Uh, let's leave it there and um. Yeah, thanks very much for your time. That was thanks, Barry. Have wonderful. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and tell your friends about the Music Career Show.